There is a story told of an English woman who had two daughters, one of which had died. She was on a ship bound for America for a visit with her other daughter. In a storm at sea, it was feared the ship might sink. All, this, all the passengers, save this woman, were in a state of near panic. When asked why she was so calm, she said, Well, I have two daughters, one in America and one in heaven. I'm on my way to see my daughter. If the ship survives, I'll see the one in America. If not, I'll see the one in heaven. So either way, I'll see my daughter. So please turn your Bibles to 1 John. We're going to be conducting our study in chapter 5 and focusing on verses 16 to 21. And our message this morning is called Closing Remarks. And this is, as we said before, our final message on the series of 1 John, which we started back in July of last year. So as you're finding your place in God's Word, I want to share with you that we'll, what we'll be talking about on this Lord's Day. As we saw in our opening story, this woman has an absolute assurance of when it is her time, when she draws her last breath, she would be with the Lord, experiencing eternal life with her loved ones who are also faithful to the Lord. So in these closing remarks of John, he shares once more that we as the true followers of the Lord know where we are going when it's our time. Additionally, John continues his teaching on the prayer on praying in God's will, as we discussed last week, showing what we should be praying for in regards to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And finally, John's very last words of this letter are a warning that is both vital to his original audience and also to us in the 21st century. Now, before we get started on the text, please join me once more in prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask you to be with our brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world. Lord, as your truth is being preached, may the ears that are hearing your truth take that truth and have it go truly deep in them and truly know your truth so they can go out there and do your will. We pray that there is faithfulness in sharing your word. That your word is shared without man's wisdom, without man's traditions, but instead it is rooted and grounded in the truth that's found in your infallible and inanimate word. Lord, I pray that as people are listening to this message, if they are true believers, they will have assurance of the faith that they have. They will know where they are going when they draw their last breath. And for anyone who listens to this message, if they do not yet have a relationship with you, may they be compelled, Lord. May they repent of their sins, turn away from it, believe in who you truly are, surrender their lives to you. For we pray this all in your precious Son's name, in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text this morning is 1 John chapter 5, verse 16 to 21. And our passage reads, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. The evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. So let's take a look at our first point. God will give us life. Verses 16 to 17, where we first look at, says again, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. 
to those who commit sin that does not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. <clears throat> so, the ESV Study Bible has a note about verse 16 that I believe will be very helpful for us understanding this passage. It says, sin, not leading to death, is sin which, for, which forgiveness is possible because forgiveness is sought and God is willing to grant it. Death and eternal life are present spiritual states as well as ultimate actual destinies, hell, heaven. Sin that leads to death is probably sin that is, number one, unrepented of, and number two, of the kind of nature that John has warned about throughout the letter. Resolution, resolute rejection of the true doctrine about Christ. Chronic disobedience to God's commandments. Persistent lack of love for fellow believers. All indications of a lack of saving faith, which will not be forgiven. So John is not saying that the people who commit sins under this category of leading to death are forever unable to receive God's grace. In actuality, John is emphasizing that those who continue with a lack of saving faith are on the path of eternal destruction. Being in a state of rebellion against God, habitually practicing sin and wickedness, this makes it completely impossible that one can have a saving relationship in God if this is the case. See, without repenting and genuinely believing in Christ's saving work, and without totally surrendering to Him, no relationship with God is possible. So as a result, eternal life is also impossible without divine intervention from God, in which case the person would be regenerated and come to faith in Christ. So we as believers are to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ when we see them sinning and being weak in an area in their spiritual walk with Christ. We are to come together as we gather together here as a church as we're about to embark on communion at the end of service. We are to come together and when we see a brother and sister in Christ struggling, we need to be praying for them. As long as they are genuine believers, we know that the outcome of those prayers will result in the confession of their wrongdoing. For no genuine believer makes a practice of sinning. We were talking about this before in our Sunday school. Church discipline is so important. If we see somebody and we know somebody is habitually practicing a sin, that is where the church has to do church discipline. Because no believer is going to continue going through a practice of sin. That's why we, we, we come together and we show from the word, what you're doing is against God. And if it gets all the way to the point where it's confessed amongst the church and the person still persists, then the only thing that we can do is to treat the, people, the person as an unbeliever. Because we know from the scriptures what a believer looks like and what an unbeliever looks like. For a genuine believer, when they realize their error and they realize their, their fault, they are remorseful and they hate that sin. For an unbeliever engaging in a practicing of sin, there is no guarantee at all. For the ones who are born again, we know for a fact, based on the Word of God, where they are going. We know where believers are going to go at the very end. However, for a person who's unrepentant, unregenerated, there are only two options for them. And not a single person in this world can know what's going to happen at the end for them, except for God who knows what's going to happen. You see, if a person is unrepentant, then that means that it is guaranteed that they are going to experience eternal hellfire and the second death. However, if a person is unrepentant today but later on repents, then we know that they come into the fellowship with the Lord and the God's family and the children of God, and they'll be forgiven of their sins, and we know that they'll experience eternal life. 
So as long as there is breath within a person, there is always a chance that they will be saved. See, from our vantage point, we don't know who is elect or unelect. Only God knows that. And that's why our job is to continue to pray about those who don't know what's going to happen to them. But if you're unsaved, we don't know. There's no guarantee. So when John says, there is sin that leads to death, I do not say that one should pray for that. He is not saying don't pray for unbelievers. He's making a distinction that when you pray for a believer who's sinning, if they're a true, genuine believer, they will repent. That's a guarantee. However, if you're praying for an unbeliever, there's no guarantee. And that's what John is saying. He's saying that these promises, you got to pray in God's will, knowing what the outcome of the prayer will be, that guarantee and that promise is for a believer. But an unbeliever, we don't know what's going to happen. So it doesn't mean don't pray for it. John is just saying that the guarantee that he's talking about is for believers. Additionally, John is not sugarcoating the reality of sin at all. So although believers will not make a practice of sin, none of them are perfect, and they sin. That's why John says, all wrongdoing is sin. Whether you're an unbeliever or a believer, all sin is wrongdoing, but there is sin that does not lead to death. And that is when you commit a sin, but you're not making a practice of it, and when you're confronted of it, you repent of it. Because you've been convicted by what the Word of God says, and the person comes and shows you what it says. So let's look at what Scripture warns us regarding sin. For it is both a warning to us of the power of sin, and it can help us to better pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are battling the flesh. See, for all believers have to engage in this battle. Romans 6.12 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So we must acknowledge that the flesh wants us to have our own selfish passions. It wants us to obey in the same way that we obeyed our passions before we were slaves, before we were saved, while we were still slaves to sin. Beloved, remember that Christ has shattered those chains, those chains of bondage to sin. You, as a believer, are no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer a slave to your selfish passions. You are no longer a slave to your worldly desires. Remember that God gave you a brand new heart. He took that stone heart and he made it a heart of flesh. He gave you brand new passions that you now have. He gave you brand new desires that line up with his will. Let us be encouraged by the truth found in Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that has, was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Brothers and sisters, please do not stop. Continue going. Run the race with endurance. Don't look at the world and all its evils. Set your focus on the one who freed you from the slavery of sin. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus and the promise of eternal life. For your faith is founded on him, and your faith is perfected in him. Look forward to your future state and glory, which is nothing to be shameful about. We are to look forward to eternity. We are to look forward to the joy set before us as Christ, while he was on the cross, looked forward to the joy set before him. Christ had to endure shame on the cross. But he saw the joy set before him and is now sitting at the right hand of God. So we as believers, we must overcome. We must persevere. We must endure in this life. 
we must overcome and persevere and endure even while our flesh is tempting you. Just set your eyes on the ultimate prize. Set your eyes on Jesus Christ. When we see a brother or sister in Christ struggling, encourage them. Encourage them from the Word of God. Because we must be both watchful of ourselves and also watchful of other children of God. Just look at the profound truth in Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Wise words here to Paul writes. And look at the amazing truth that James shares with us in James 5, verse 19 to 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So we as believers have a great responsibility for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We must appreciate the power of prayer. And we must pray for the ones who are in fellowship with us. We also need to remember the necessity and the value of confession and accountability. James 5 verse 16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We have to understand that. Now some people, some traditions will say, Oh, you know, you have to do your prayers with a priest and only he can absolve you of your, your sins and yada yada. No, the scripture says we're to confess our sins to one another. Okay, we are to surround ourselves with people who will hold us accountable. And they can't hold us accountable unless we confess our sins. So we are not supposed to be ashamed of it. We're supposed to share it and gather together as the church with our brothers and sisters in Christ and be encouraged. This is important. This is why there is no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. This is why we gather here Again, we were talking about in Sunday school, people are thinking that they can attend church online. And some people may have medical conditions or things like that. That's understandable. But as long as you're able to walk out the door and get to another place, then you can come to church. And there's a point for it. There's a fellowship here. And we're supposed to be united together. We have to be obedient to the words of God. So as followers of Christ, we must love and care for God's children and understand that on top of all that, Jesus ultimately is the one who protects us. And Satan may harm us in some ways, but he can never touch our salvation. He can never touch our assurance. And with that, let's look at the next point. God will protect us. Verse 18 of our passage says, We know that someone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, the phrase, he who was born of God, is actually a reference to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Usually when we see the term born of God, it is talking about believers. However, as a proper and essential rule of hermeneutics, hermeneutics is the method one uses concerning the practice of interpretation, especially of the Bible and other literary texts. As a vital rule, we must always be aware of the context. And in the context of this term, born of God, that's being used in this passage, it actually clearly points that it's talking about Jesus. The reason that John uses this terminology here is to point to many different facts. It's a point that Jesus, in his physical birth, was born of God in the sense that he was incarnated and sent from God the Father and was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And additionally, in Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he was again born of God in the sense that he rose from the dead and ultimately was brought back to life. So when John is using this term, he's teaching a bunch of theological truths that relate to the divinity of Christ here. 
The phrase, the evil one does not touch, is referring to how Satan will not touch believers in the sense of causing any kind of permanent spiritual loss or damage. Those who are in Christ are protected from eternal death by Christ. And they are already in possession of eternal life because of Christ. Not because of what we did, but because of Christ. So those who say that they are followers of Christ are protected by him. And they will always make a practice of righteousness. To think that a believer can make a practice of unrighteousness is to misunderstand the truth that is contained within the whole of the Bible. The whole counsel of God. So look at Romans 6, verses 1 through 2, when Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Paul brings up a very good point here. Paul is saying that a Christian who lives a carnal and wicked life is in fact living a fairy tale. A follower of Christ who does not obey Christ is a contradiction, is an oxymoron. They are a round square, a dry ocean, a weightless border, a frozen fire, a silent scream. Simply put, they do not exist. The word of God is clear as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When you look at your testimony, when you say this is the moment in which I was saved, you have to ask yourself, is that old person dead? Are you a brand new creation? Have you seen changes from when you said you were saved to where you are now that you were becoming more Christ-like? Those are questions we have to ask ourselves so we know for sure are we truly a new creation in Christ. As a new creation, we radically act different from our old selves. John, throughout this letter, has been making this point repeatedly over and over again. He's been saying it. And it can't be any clearer than what it says in 1 John chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. And we covered this very early on in our midway through our study. And here's what John says. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. John is very clear here. So the one born again is protected from making a practice of sinning. And previously John talked about how the Holy Spirit in us protects us from making a habit of sin. And now John is saying that Jesus too does this. And this truth that John is sharing with us now is seen in other parts of Scripture. In June 24, the Word of God says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. The him that's being referred to in that verse, that's Christ. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, John records Jesus as saying, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of the trial that is coming on the whole world, and to try those who dwell on the earth. And we also see in John 17, verses 12 to 20, when Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer. That's an amazing passage. I recommend you go and read that in full. Look at what our Lord and Savior says, first talking about the disciples in specific, and then applying this in his prayer to all future believers. This is what he says. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. 
But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is true. And you sent me into this world so that I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You see that? He was praying specifically about the disciples, and he says, not just them, but to all who believe. And even within that prayer, as John is showing us, Jesus specifically in that prayer says, I am not praying for the world. He says, I'm praying for my followers. Because that's praying in God's will. Because we know that when we're praying for fellow believers in Christ, they will be obedient. There is a certain way in which they will act. And that's why when we pray, it's important that when we're praying, we understand our theology and our doctrines well. Because if we're praying that way, we're praying in His will. Oftentimes when we don't understand the scriptures, the prayers that we're praying is actually not in His will. It's theologically wrong. And there's no guarantee that that prayer request will be answered because it's wrong. So if you want to be praying in His will, you need to study His word. But on top of that, as we discussed last week, there's a confidence that the Holy Spirit knows exactly what needs to be praying and is helping us in praying for us. So be reassured of that, church. So it is clear then that those who are regenerated are the sons and daughters of God. Even though we live in a world that hates us and is in the power of Satan. Now this takes us to our next point. We are from God. Verse 19 of our passage says, We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Don't for a second believe the lies of this world. This world is not your friend and simply does not care about you. The whole world lies in the power of Satan. And that is until the Lord comes back and delivers to him his final blow and defeats him for good. For from the very beginning, Satan has always been our enemy and his method of attack has not changed at all. Just take a look at what it says in Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did you notice that? Satan said, did God actually say? How many times have you ever heard somebody say, did God really say? Does the word of God really say? All of life's troubles and calamities come from doubting the truth of God's word. We must be vigilant. And this is why we must heed the warning of the Apostle Peter, a man who had first-hand experience on what it was like to be fooled by Satan in a terrible manner. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Do you know how a lion hunts? He runs forward into a pack of prey, and then he's observing. Who's running off on their own? He's not going to attack someone that's in the herd. No, he wants, who's the one coming off the pack? Who's the one by themselves, separating themselves from the pack? Because that's an easy target. See, when the enemy of this world, when he attacks, he looks for the ones without church home. He looks for the ones who do not have fellowship with their believers. They don't have people holding them accountable. He looks for the ones who come on Sundays to church, but they curse on the weekdays. 
He looks for the ones that opens their Bibles in front of everyone on Sunday, but when no one's looking throughout the week, they never open their Bibles at all. But the reality is, God sees what's happening, and God knows who are his own. And Satan is looking too, and observing whom he can easily devour. We must pray for God's mercy and grace, for Satan is an enemy who is truly wicked. He blinds the eyes of unbelievers, distracting them with the cares of this world so they cannot see the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Only our God can remove that blindness, so we must appeal to him. Our enemy is not like any of our other adversaries in this world. We are not battling flesh, church. We are battling the spiritual. In Ephesians 6, 12, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We can't forget the fact that in all of creation, men and women all fall under one group or the other. We are either slaves to sin, something every one of us always starts off with due to the curse of the fall, or if we're saved by grace, we're slaves to righteousness. And that's only made possible if God has mercy on us. Romans 6, verses 16 to 20 says it very clearly. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who are once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of the teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So to be free from being a slave to sin means being a slave to righteousness instead. And that is only made possible due to the work of Christ on the cross and the drawing of God, of us to himself. Colossians 1 verse 13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. For it is Christ who has given us true understanding. And it is Christ, our true God, that gave us eternal life. And this takes us to our next point. God has given us understanding. Verse 20 of our passage says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Our knowledge of truth does not come from within us, like some kind of Disney movie. Okay, It does not come from any of us particular individuals. We don't have our own individual truths. Something society tries to tell us. Everyone has their own truth. The truth is found only in God alone. And Christ, our Lord and Savior, Savior, reveals that truth to us. And that is how we can come to a proper understanding of what saving faith looks like. As 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 11 says, Now may our God the Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And as John 17 verse 25 to 26 says, which quotes Jesus yet again saying another powerful statement from his high priestly prayer. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. 
and these known that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love of which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. In the Gospel accounts, Jesus reveals to us the truth that was already revealed in the Old Testament. However, we with our human minds did not fully understand it. He shared what it truly means to be born again. And he provided us proof of the reliability of Scripture when he showed us how it was used. He taught us how to properly interpret Scripture. He showed us how all of the Old Testament was all about him and pointed to him. He rose from the dead after his sacrifice on the cross and ministered to the apostles, who then shared that knowledge, and we have that record in the epistles of them teaching the church. And Christ even appeared to John while the apostle was in exile and shared with him about things that have not yet happened yet. So all our knowledge of saving faith, all our knowledge of the truth of the word of God from Genesis to Revelation was taught to us ultimately by Christ. As our passage says, he is the true God and eternal life, or as John 17, 3 puts it, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And with that, we have our final statement from the disciple whom the Lord loved, and that statement is a warning. And this takes us to our final point, worship God alone. Verse 21 of our passage, last verse in the letter says, little children, keep yourself from idols. Now, at first glance, this seems very abrupt and a little bit random. But we need to remember the context of the whole letter in order to have a proper handle of this verse. First, let's look at another alternative alternative translation of this verse, the NLT version, which is a more thought-for-thought Bible translation, renders the verse this way. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. This is very helpful in our understanding of this verse. Secondly, let's look at a few other solid notes I came across this week in my study of this passage that I believe will further help us. So consider this note from the MacArthur Study Bible. John contrasts the term idols with the true God of verse 20. He has reference here to the false teachers who withdrew from the brotherhood with which they had been formerly associated. Their false beliefs and practices are the idols from which the readers are commanded to protect themselves. The false teachers upheld the world's philosophy as superior to God's revelation as demonstrated in their perversion of basic Christian teachings, faith, love, and obedience. In closing, John once again highlights the importance of adherence to the fundamentals of the faith. And consider, too, this note from the Expositor's Bible Commentary on the Epistles of John. The exhortation, keep yourselves from idols, at first glance seems out of place. Idolatry has not so much as been mentioned in the epistle. Although the warning may be understood as a general admonition to avoid any contact with paganism, it is more likely that this that the warning represents a final characterization of the heresy represented by the false teachers. False teaching is ultimately apostasy from the true faith. To follow after it is to become nothing better than an idol worshiper, especially if it is a matter of the truth of one's conception of God. The author is blunt. The false teachers propose not the worship of the one true God, made known in his son Jesus, but a false god, an idol they have invented. And we know that the word of God speaks of idolatry and the warnings against it. As it says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13 to 14, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. 
In Exodus 20, verse 3, which says, You shall have no other gods before me. Sure, in the ancient world, many of the idols were made out of stone and metal and wood, but they are not the only idols. Many things in this world, this world offers, are idols. And this is why we are constantly warned not to love the things of the world. John says earlier in this epistle in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. James, the brother of our Lord, simply warn, similarly warns of the appeal of the world and its dangers. James 4.4 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Very strong words. In Colossians 3.5, the things of the world are plainly called idolatry. So, this way that there is no confusion on the matter. Colossians 3.5 says, But put to death, therefore, what is earthly to you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. In the world today, there are many, many idols. The idolatry of sex is everywhere. Just look at what is pumped out of Hollywood. It is saturated in sex for the joy of the world and those who absolutely love the darkness. And it's not just in the movies that are for adults, not are putting it in children's content. The idolatry of passion and evil desires is everywhere too. The world seems to make heroes of those who love evil and are filled with ungodly passions. You look at the different celebrities and who's famous and you look at what they practice and the world puts them up on a high pedestal. But idolatry of covetousness has also run rampant. Ads in every form of media always want you to crave what your neighbor has and make sure that you are unhappy and unsatisfied with what God has provided you with. All of these things are idols. A person, real or imaginary, can be an idol. A job or a position can be an idol. A sport, a team, an athlete can be an idol. Even your home or your own family or certain family members can be an idol. And as in the case of our passage, an idol can be a false doctrine that you hold, like not believing that Jesus is fully man and fully God, or believing that the work that he did on the cross didn't accomplish anything or that Jesus did not really raise from the dead. All these beliefs and those like it are idols. For they don't represent the Christ of the scriptures. Instead, there is a Jesus that was made, that was created in man's image, instead of what scripture says. Simply put, anything that we place above the Lord is an idol and needs to be knocked down. For the one who is an idolater, there is no hope unless they repent and believe. As Revelation 21 says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. share this. Especially with the Super Bowl coming right around the corner, I felt it was very appropriate. When does sports as entertainment become sports as idolatry? Consider this banner scene at Lambeau Field in 1996. The season, the Green Bay Packers won the Super Bowl in New Orleans 
and their quarterback, Brett Favre, was named the most valuable player. Our Favre, who art in Lambeau, holy, hallowed be thy arm. The bowl will come, it will be won, in New Orleans as it is in Lambeau. Give us this Sunday our weekly win, and give us many touchdown passes, but do not let others pass against us. Lead us not into frustration, but deliver us to Bourbon Street. Divine is the MVP, the best of the NFL, and the glory of the Cheeseheads, now and forever. Go get them. Apparently, some fans recognize their team's support for what it really is, worship. However, for those who are in Christ, we worship the Lord. And we praise God for the sacrifice that his son made for us so that it made possible for us to have a relationship with him. And it is now about that remembrance of that great and amazing sacrifice of our mighty Savior that we bring our attention to. So as we begin our communion portion of the service, I want to invite now every genuine born-again believer in the room to partake in this act together. If you do not yet know the Lord, or do not have a relationship with Him, or if you're under church discipline from this church or another church, then I will ask you to wait until you've resolved your issue before participating. As you came in, you should have gotten one of these communion packets. Again, if you haven't got it, raise your hand. Someone will get it to you. Now, before we join in communion together, I would like us to look at what our Lord and Savior said in the Gospel of John. If you turn your copy of God's Word to John 6, verses 53 to 58, this is what it says. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true blood, and my blood my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now, in this passage, Many people looking with a very human eye believe that the elements in the communion literally turn into Christ's body and blood. They believe that by consuming it, they receive some type of special grace and that it even plays a factor into, its, into your salvation. But as we have said earlier and many times before, context and proper hermeneutics that are being led by the Holy Spirit is mandatory in understanding God's truth. Here, Jesus is clearly speaking figuratively. Even many of those who heard what Jesus says here, if you look at a few verses down, many people start leaving his fellowship. Pay attention to what Jesus says, though, at the very end of this passage, as this ties everything together. The bread that came down to the Israelites while they were wandering in the wilderness after they had left Egypt to feed their physical bodies. All of these people, they eventually died. However, this would foreshadow the coming of the Lord. In like manner, Jesus came from heaven for his people, his sheep. And whoever has communion with him or fellowship with him will have eternal life. And the communion service, which Jesus instituted after he said these things later on, is a symbol of our communion with him. So Jesus is the superior bread of life. That's the message that Jesus was saying. Just like he told the woman at the well that he is the living water. Now he did not mean that he is physically water to be consumed literally. 
So likewise, in this case, the bread and wine or the bread and juice is not meant that it physically transforms to Christ's body and blood. Jesus was talking about focusing on a relationship with him and not having a misguided or unhealthy focus on a ritual practice or the elements that are used in that practice. When we participate in communion together now, we are remembering what he did on the cross at Calvary. That is the point of communion. It's remembrance of that. It is a powerful symbol and a powerful remembrance of a significant event that is essential in the believer's life. So let us thank him for voluntarily giving his life for his sheep. Let us thank him that he paid a debt that was impossible for us to pay. Let us thank him that he did not leave us in judgment and wrath because we deserve that. But he didn't leave us there. So if you get your packets out and open the top part, I'll get Brett out. And Jack, will you uh, pray for us before we partake in the bread together? Father, thank you for this part in the communion service where we take the bread, a symbol of your body that was broken for us on the Galvin's cross. The word of God says in Luke 22, 19, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Not forget, pack it and open up the cup. And Ted, will you uh, pray for us before we partake in the cup together? The word of God says in Luke 22 20. And likewise, a cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you in the new covenant is my blood. With that, we conclude our communion portion of our service. To God be all the glory. Amen.